Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 9 of our second season, I spoke with Polish-born designer and architect Jan Lorenz, principal of Lorenz U, a leading experiential design firm based out of Atlanta. Jan spoke about his upbringing in communist Poland and his subsequent move to the US at age 8, when the weight of communist policies and constant shortages of basic goods became too much to bear for his family. He also spoke about how this early life experience shaped his drive and work ethic. Listen in to hear Jan's journey through life and how he got to become the respected designer he is today. Uh, so we're here today with Jan Lorang, founder of Lorang and You, a leading exhibit and experiential design firm in Atlanta. Thanks, Jan, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. So let's ju jump right into the, the meat of the interview, and I'd like you to start with uh, telling us who you are and what you do. Well, uh, I am uh, Jan Lawrence, and uh, we I've had a firm called uh, Lawrence and You Design for the last 40 years this year, and I started it out of graduate school uh, about 40 years ago this year, and we uh, my background is uh, undergraduate in industrial design and a master's in graphic design from the Institute of Design in Chicago, and then a uh, master's in architecture from Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, and those three disciplines really uh, adapt to us doing the work that we do today, which uh, sometimes involves uh, architecture, sculpture, um, graphic design, uh, signage design, uh, and uh, industrial design. So this, over the last number of years, kind of making a full circle where we're doing just about every aspect of, of those three disciplines on a variety of projects. And uh, I guess I can talk a little bit about our uh, initial history. Uh, we started more or less as a uh, industrial design firm uh, doing uh, some branded uh, elements uh, at the very beginning. Uh, one of my professors uh, gave me my first uh, design job uh, in uh, as a sophomore in college and uh, I was doing uh, primarily branded uh, environments at that point as a design assistant and then um, I worked at a firm called Peterson Associates uh, which I had the opportunity to become design director when I was just at the beginning of graduate school and um, I moved further into branded environments by designing target identity and logo uh, prior to starting my own firm So the, uh, the thing that was kind of exciting at that point is the principal of that firm, who just left an international firm called Unimark in Chicago, uh, formed his own firm, had uh, Target as a client, and we were able to, um, he uh, allowed me to do pretty much everything. I designed the logo, designed the application of the logo, designed store planning uh, at uh, 22 years old. So it was pretty, uh, pretty exciting uh, work at the beginning. And I became fairly confident in, in what I was able to do and achieve that uh, by the time 1978 rolled around and I was about 24, uh, I got an opportunity. One of my professors referred me to a client and uh, the client was making um, uh, technological equipment for testing petrochemical um, apparatus. And they looked like they were making these, these equipment pieces in the garage or basement, and it really was pretty awful looking stuff. So what we did was we designed the logo, we designed all the symbolism that went around it, uh, the packaging, the, the equipment design, and was able to bring this out of a garage operation where they were able to compete with uh, the likes of Arco Chemical and other large scale uh, uh, technical companies that they competed against. So it was an exciting beginning for me Uh, in 78 to about 80. Uh, I finished uh, um, my master's in 79 and then uh, got a little itchy in terms of um, uh, relocating to a nicer climate. Uh, so we looked all over, not climate, climate and geography because Chicago was, uh, it was an exciting design environment, but it was uh, uh, not an exciting geographic environment. 
was rather flat and freezing. So we uh, took a trip cross country, met with uh, designers that I respected for a period of six months and then decided on uh, Atlanta, came to Atlanta in um, 1981, uh, January, and uh, started to do uh, very large scale convention facilities here in Atlanta and then uh, grew into projects across the Southeast uh, into the rest of the country. And then, uh, about 10 years, 15 years into the firm, I think we started doing some international work. Uh, my partner, Chung Yu is from Korea. So we started doing work in, uh, in Korea, working with partners, design partners over there. And then in 2005, we, uh, came to doing, um, projects in Dubai. Dubai was introduced to us. I went to Dubai, met some influential people. We started doing work in Dubai. Um, and then, uh, we started doing work in, uh, in India in, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, 2008 rolls around, um, the economy in the U S started to uh, crash. The economy in Dubai started to crash. We got a, uh, contact, uh, from China to do a project actually probably a year or two before that we did a project for UPS for the Olympics where we're doing a branded environment, uh, interiors for UPS. And, uh, we, uh, did that through a corporate corporation of UPS, but the job in, in China that came later in 2008 was for a firm called Vanka, which is, a, I think the second largest developer in China where we got a chance to do, uh, the first request was for do, doing signage. The second request was, um, uh, do you do faith, uh, facade design for uh, 30 story towers? And I said, sure, we can do that. We, certainly never done one, but I didn't say that right away. I uh, had an opportunity to move into that, had an opportunity to move into marketing design, uh, some building design. Uh, all of a sudden, sculpture came along. All of a sudden, uh, storytelling and, and narrative came along where we developed the entire marketing storyline, developed the logos, developed the interiors for these projects. Uh, and one led to another where we started doing work all along the coast of China for Vanka. We did probably... Uh, dozen projects for them since, uh, 2008. And then, um, most recently in the last few years, Greenland has been a, a client of ours and uh, we're doing the third project for them right now. So, um, I'm going to let you pipe in because I'm becoming a little uh, long winded here. So no, I, I, that's great. the great introduction because, uh, you've actually answered a few of the questions I had planned for later, but that's okay. Uh, so it gives us a good, I guess, overall insight on uh, where you're coming from. So um, I want to jump back in time a little bit, and um, I'd like you to speak about uh, where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. Well, I'm, uh, I was uh, born in the mid-50s and 54 in, in a little village in southeastern Poland called Jasliska. And uh, as a side note, uh, my father... Uh, my parents applied to leave Poland after communism came in in 1948 before I was born. So um, they were trying their best to to leave Poland, even though we had a, a, a pretty pretty nice house and everything else. But the, the government was just not acceptable um, for my parents. Uh, so my father, uh, I grew up, as I said, in this little town of 500 people. The town is about 600 years old, uh, but it has basically... Uh, my, my entire family probably populates most of the town. Um, it's near the Slovak border. Um, I just remember my father was a uh, bridal maker. He was trained in leathersmithing. Um, he, we had a farm that was nationalized by the government and later returned. Um, the, we had barely had electricity, so I was living in what would be in the U.S. probably in 1920, I would guess. We barely had electricity. We had a well outside um, that we had a pump connected to, so we, we could have running water when we chose to. Um, we had an in-barn outhouse, so it was pretty exciting. Then if they got into the tundra of the field in the winter uh, to do your thing. Um, we uh, we had, uh, I have good memories of Poland, but uh, when I came to the United States in 19... 62. My father came in 61. Uh, I came with my mother in 62. Uh, it was a, it was quite a culture shock coming from this little, little village. And, and on top of that, I didn't speak English. So I landed in Chicago. There were two weeks left of school. I, uh, I went to the class. I understood nothing. It just sounded like 
I could hear the chalkboard squeak, uh, but I, I knew nothing of what they were saying. And uh, probably over the summer, uh, I was watching uh, Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear, and I learned how to speak English. So uh, that was a uh, uh, kind of self-taught to some degree. So I was only, you know, just barely uh, eight years old. So it was a wasn't that complex. But what the whole shock of all that was a uh, um, the the past life in Poland was kind of a in the fog because of coming to um, deal with being in America, trying to speak English. And um, I've since um, regained a lot of that uh, in going back and visiting family over there. I try to go back once every few years to visit. And eventually I think I'd like to spend summers over there to, um, to understand more of my, my culture and heritage um, in uh, throughout Poland. That's very interesting. So can you talk a little bit more about how growing up in a communist country shaped you? And you also said something about um, the communist regime not being acceptable to your parents. Uh, if you could touch on that as well, that would be a, a, a great follow-up uh, answer. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'll explain that a little bit because that kind of has, that whole experience has something to do with uh, my personal feeling right now about what's called free market economics, which uh, my son Richard is, is very passionate about. Uh, my father, um, uh, what happened after World War II was uh, our town was right in the middle of all these battlefields between the Russians and the Germans. Uh, and uh, this was towards the end of the war. Uh, my uncle perished in Auschwitz uh, shortly before that. Our town uh, was bombed by either Germans or or Russians, and uh, uh, they lived. My parents lived through that with little ch little my brothers and sisters that were born in my two brothers that were born in the forty two and forty four. They lived through as a little baby in the forest after our house was bombed. So the war settled down. Uh, the uh, uh, Russians came to take control. At first, it was a kind of uh, um, some level of freedom uh, was given. And then uh, by the time 48 rolls around, uh, Stalin had fully uh, nationalized everything and, and uh, the rules of the Soviet Union came to apply. My father was a uh, bridal maker, as I mentioned, he did leather work. So he bought a, a hide, um, uh, cow hide from, a, uh, from the black market. And um, he was arrested for buying this piece of hide and he spent four months in jail for buying a piece of hide. And uh, he, uh, my mother couldn't get there because there were no buses. So she had to walk like 30 miles just to visit my father. And this really kind of infuriated my, my father about the regime that they took so much energy to try to capture people that try to break the rules uh, that there shouldn't be those rules to begin with. So that experience happened. Um, then he tried to apply to leave and uh, was, was not given permission for another 12 years to leave. Uh, the other thing was we turned our land over to the government. The government took the land and uh, they had these cooperative farms. And on these cooperative farms, everyone was there cooperating, working their way through it. And then uh, we together, you know, as communist ethos would be, we would share in the benefits of all this. So what happened during that period was everyone stole from the government during that period. And uh, my father was just, you know, was just really upset about that. There was no sense of initiative on anyone's part. Uh, to do anything because they didn't have to. All they did was steal from the from the granary. So at the end of the year, at harvest time, there was nothing to share because everyone had already taken it home. So that further upset my father. Uh, the fortunate thing about Poland was that they cut that co-op uh, pretty much off and they gave the farm fields back to the individuals after a period of time because they knew it wasn't working. Uh, but still, uh, your neighbors, our neighbors would turn us in for watching radio, uh, listening to Radio Free Europe in the evenings. Uh, people would snitch on you. So it was just a terrible environment. And, uh, and that, that free market that I speak of doesn't exist. And the things that I do as a businessman and, and what my father eventually wound up doing as an upholsterer in America was, would not be possible. So he left, uh, uh, in 1961. I left in 62. Uh, so that's kind of the, the background of that. And my, my feeling about, governments is uh they shouldn't be there to choke you they should be there to support you and uh, and and that would be the best benefit to all concerned in terms of how things can can mutually be beneficial to uh, to society rather than the government controlling every every walk of your life even today in the in where we work in china uh the government is there certainly it's a huge government 
but they allow so much freedom that people have, you know, have been able to uh, become wealthy, help society, and the society is much better as a result of it. So it's a, it's a kind of a strange mix over in the, in China right now. It's it's Chinese version of, of communism. It's not uh, maybe the Russian version of what they uh, Marx Engels uh, had anticipated. It's far from it. Mm-hmm. So can it be said that your father was a, a craftsman? Yes, he was a, an amazing craftsman. He, uh, he was, you know, he was able to uh, dye the hide, scrape the hide, uh, uh, upholster with the hide, make, make bags with the hide. Uh, I mean, uh, as working with him, one of the things that I enjoyed when I was uh, uh, through high school and through um, college, I would be kind of the front guy and the grunt uh, of the operation. He had a small shop uh, that he did work in, and I would, um, uh, what's, what's called stripping the furniture. I took all the fabric off the old furniture. He reupholstered it. He cut the fabric, or sometimes I cut the fabric. My mother would sew the fabric. The wonderful thing about my father is he could look at something and by eye measure it and cut it, and it'd be accurate. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I guess I don't consider myself having that same kind of skill because I would look at it, I'd measure it, cut it wrong, cut it the second time, so I'd have to get extra fabric so I didn't screw it up. But it was always amazing to look at my father's uh, skill of um, of doing this. I've uh, always been uh, very impressed by by that kind of craft. And he was very passionate about his craft. And uh, in Poland, of course, he would make saddles and bridles. When we moved to Chicago, there was no opportunity for that. So he was able, the thing that, again, uh, impresses me, he gave up everything that we had. My family gave up everything that we had. We just came with two suitcases to the United States. uh, And we were able to build a life for ourselves, have a house, have, you know, all the things that we needed. Uh, even though we, we gave up everything, he gave it all up at 45, my parents, when they moved here. So his, he transformed himself from an upholsterer to a, uh, to a craftsman that did very high end, uh, furniture pieces like, uh, French provincial furniture that had the tufting and just, and then, uh, using brass nails, finishing the furniture was very critical. So all these pieces that I learned about, not only that, but also the, the tail end, you know, one was the grunt part that I would do the, uh, the dirty work of taking the stuff apart um, and finding all kinds of coins in there from 20 years. So I started building my coin collection from that. Um, I, um, uh, I started uh, doing the sales uh, when my brother, older brother moved out. So I started doing sales for him. So I was able to kind of uh, know how many yards it would take to do the fabric, how much we should charge for it. I pick it up, I deliver it. So I started to have that kind of, um, um, uh, connection with customers. So that, that certainly helped me when I started my own firm, not that I was that knowledgeable by it, but I, I did have some experience at that. So that was very helpful, but a lot of things, the ethos of what he, he instilled in me, what my parents instilled with me, the, the work ethic, the hard work, the, the, um, uh, being conscientious of not spending more than you have, not having credit, has been with me all my life. I mean, we, we never grew the firm bigger than 15 people. We, we currently have uh, no more than that at this point and, and never, never will. And we can, yet we can do all the work around the world with a, with a small group. Uh, but it's always been that conservative nature financially that has, you know, saved us where, you know, times got tough at a certain downturn in the economy. We've had probably, you know, half a dozen to, to 10 uh, downturns over that uh, 40 year period. But, we managed to survive it. We don't, I don't get paid sometimes. I get paid other times, but it, it kind of leveled itself off. But being conservative has helped that because uh, you don't just go in and out of business like, uh, like some operations do. So, so it sounds like you have the same amount of resilience that your father had. How much did uh, what your father did and taught you influence your later career choices or choice? Well, it was a kind of an interesting career choice. So my parents, my brother, my oldest brother that I didn't mention earlier, uh, was supposed to come from Poland in 1964. And he was not able to leave until 1980 because he had an education as a structural engineer. So he was not able to leave. He was the first one in my family that, that got a, a college education. Uh, my parents both had fifth grade education and they, they just worked. And my father had a trade school education, of course. But um, they were suggesting to me that I, uh, I should be an uh, engineer. And I always had the knack for picking up a pencil and drawing. And ever since I was in Poland, I even had memories of that, enjoying uh, you know, colored pencils or, or uh, just pencil drawings that I would do. I always loved that. I wanted to be an artist. And, 
I thought about that. My parents said, no, 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 you can't, you can't be an artist because you're just not going to make a living doing that. You need to become an engineer. And we had a, a friend of ours that, um, was, was a, um, uh, diplomat with the Polish, um, Polish diplomatic corps. And he was very familiar with the Bauhaus, um, in, uh, in Germany. And, uh, he suggested, he says, well, he, uh, you have an artistic talent. You want to use that. I would recommend to you is the American Bauhaus, the, uh, uh, School of Architecture at uh, uh, Illinois Institute of Technology that Mies van der Rohe brought over from the Bauhaus in Germany. So I had this vision all along when I was, uh, this probably happened in junior year or sophomore year when I was applying for colleges. So I applied to two colleges. One was uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and one was the um, um, University of Illinois in Chicago. And I did not get accepted to IIT for architecture uh, because of uh, my English scores weren't good enough for IIT. Uh, but I did get accepted at the University of Illinois. And I really had my heart set on the American Bauhaus. So I had this scheme that I would, uh, I would go uh, sign up for the program at IIT uh, at, for industrial design. And I found out about going over to the bookstore and met this guy who was an industrial designer. And I thought that's, that sounds kind of interesting. It's downstairs in the basement of uh, crown hall at the, at the IIT. And I would, um, I would go there, um, and then transfer upstairs. So I went there and we had all the basic training of, of the Bauhaus with color theory and, and, uh, form making and, uh, visualizing and, and, uh, and methodological thinking and all that. And I'm, constantly would go upstairs to see what the architects were doing. And they were just creating little niece, uh, little nieces, little, uh, niece uh, buildings with I beams and, and, uh, all of them looked the same. And it was just like, and I'm having a blast designing a sailplane interior, flying sail, actually flying sailplanes to get the idea of what a sailplane is like. Um, um, and, uh, other things like that, that were equally interesting. Um, that I thought, ah, this, this architecture thing doesn't look all that interesting. So I told my parents, I'm going to stick with, uh, industrial design. I had no idea what industrial design was even then because we just had the basics the first year. My parents had no idea what industrial design was. They understood architecture. It's, it's a field where people build buildings and that's understandable, but what is industrial design? I mean, it can be anything. The wonderful thing about the program is that it taught me how to think the, the, the methodology of how to put things together, how to juggle multiple balls. Um, I don't think I learned how to design necessarily there, but I learned how to think and how to put things together and how to, uh, uh manage, uh, not in my own head, how I approach a project methodologically, not, uh, not emotionally like an artist might. So the, the interesting thing about that is yeah, I made that move. I went to the, um, uh, an architecture when I went back later at 35, uh, it was, um, I kind of missed some of the, uh, rigor, the Germanic rigor that I had at the Institute of Design, because it was kind of free spirit at that point in uh, 1980 to 1984. Frank Gehry was just coming around and people were doing all these kind of wacky projects. I, I was approaching it more like I would have um, as a uh, Bauhaus trained uh, individual. So I was taking uh, extreme uh, detail in terms of how I, <laughs> where I put door swings and things like that and how I lay out the site. Uh, while other people are taking a, a crumpled up piece of yellow trace and putting it on the wall and saying, well, this is a, this is a uh, convention center. Look at the wonderful light luminosity that this has. So they were approaching it from an artistic standpoint. And I, I was just kind of, I was not all that comfortable with it. So there was this uh, guy in the, in the architecture program uh, that was kind of a lazy laggard. Um, and he, uh, he said, why are you working so hard? Why don't you just have a good time with this program? So I started looking at how, uh, how my kids were playing with Play-Doh and, and clay and building blocks. So I started to look at my creation of spaces through uh, molding of clay and doing rough drawings and pastels and things. And that became kind of an interesting um, transition for me from, from getting detail-oriented in a... Um, in the architectural sense where I was headed. And it also let me probably survive the program because I, I was, I had the firm at the time at the same time as well. So it was a, a difficult, um, difficult time where I had to run some elements of the firm, go to, to school full time. It was a four, four year program. Uh, so that kind of saved my life a little bit. I was able to, you know, I had three kids at the time, uh, but it was a different approach that I took. 
I, I think the most valuable lesson that I have from that program uh, compared to the Institute of Design was that we were looking at architectural history. And that has, to this day, been an impact to me because the, the, in the Institute of Design at the Bauhaus, uh, at the, uh, even at the architecture school, the past didn't matter. The future only mattered. So you're creating new. My feeling on that is the exact opposite over time is that you can say that, but if you don't look at uh, precedent of history, you're going you're gonna to repeat similar mistakes. You're going to not learn from what the beautiful things that have been done in the past, whether it's classical Roman, Greco-Roman, or it's uh, uh, Otto Wagner, or it's other people that have done wonderful things uh, throughout Europe over the centuries. You're, you're bound to learn a lot more. And I did. I learned a lot through um, understanding the various movements in architecture. Uh, Robert Stern had a, had a um, program on public, uh, public TV about that same uh, time period. Um, I think it was called Pride of Place. And uh, that was a, an amazing uh, educational thing for me. I think I watched that before I went back to grad school. So one thing I have to say is that uh, uh, architectural history was a, a great takeaway for me from that, for that period. Landscape architectural history was a great takeaway. Had some great uh, professors and uh, uh, Doug Allen, who was a professor of mine over there is a landscape architecture. I learned a lot from him. So um, let's go into the subject of uh, creativity a little bit. And uh, where, where do you find your inspiration? I find my inspiration through a multitude of travel. I travel extensively in, in, um, throughout Asia, mostly in Europe. I love, absolutely love going to Europe to all the various um, capitals in Europe and, and, the, and the small towns in Europe. I start looking at materials. I start looking at context. Uh, I look at the uh, urban design. I look at uh, the details on a, on a handrail. I look at the uh, details of the cold lighting, the light fixtures. So I'm constantly on the prowl looking at the uh, inspiration. I, I photograph extensively. I used to photograph uh, uh, maybe more judiciously in the past when we had slides, I would take, uh, you know, 24 rolls of 36 and that was it. And now I, you know, it's, there's no stopping me at this point. I just, I just love to look at, uh, details that I could benefit from, uh, for, for myself personally, um, have an extensive uh, design library at the office. As I go back and, and think about, as I mentioned earlier about getting my inspiration from, um, Institute of Design. And the interesting thing about that whole experience of how to think in a different way was how do you define a project? If you define a project, design me a uh, toaster. Uh, that's pretty basic. You design a toaster. If you design, if you redefine the uh, explanation of it, um, you have preconceived notions when you say toaster. But if you say something like a way to uh, crisp and bread or, or something. I mean, I'm using something very generic here, mm -hmm. but if you redefine the project in a different way and you come at it from a different point, <clears throat> then I believe you can kind of uh, become innovative. So that kind of redefinition kind of inspired me uh, at that and other things that I've done in the past. Um, so as I move forward and we start doing a variety of different things, Architecturally, uh, the travels that I have uh, in, uh, in Europe, so that inspires me to do the various projects that we're involved in, whether they're uh, modern, traditional. I try to push myself into a variety of vernacular, not saying modern is the only way to go. Classical is quite beautiful. Europe is just magnificent because of that classical. Uh, I wouldn't want to see a Corbusian city by any way, I mean, the Corbusian cities are very visible in the Soviet Union, and uh, they're not a great thing to see. They're just awful environments. My brother and I lived in one of those in, in Warsaw. So as I move forward into that, um, the thing that has just recently uh, I've been looking at is I've been uh, delving into sculpture. Uh, I, as I approach the sculpture that I do, the figurative sculpture that I do of replicating reality, uh, is, is fine, but it's not, um, it's not something that, uh, really truly inspires me, uh, when I replicate reality, what really inspires me is I may have some thought in my head with that piece of clay and I start something and something arises that, that I had no idea where I was heading with it. 
So um, making that full circle with, uh, with what I had said earlier, I wanted to become an artist uh, early on. I've kind of made that full circle, and some of that is entering into some of our projects that we're doing. Some of that art, that uh, free-spirited thought is entering in there. While at the same time, there's other things that are more methodological, um, and, uh, and um, uh, those inspire other thoughts that I do on a more uh, maybe conventional project. So I look at the way I approach cr- creativity in different ways, depending on the, depending on the project. As, uh, as I look at, for example, uh, many uh, modern artists like, uh, like Picasso, for example, the wonderful thing about Picasso was that he was trained as a classical artist. He understood all that. You look at his early work and he was magnificent at doing a lot of that. Corbusier was a, a, a fabulous classical architect at the beginning, to somewhat degree, not as good as Picasso, but understanding all those things in art or architecture, I think having a good foundation to be able to jump from, from that to something that's totally free-spirited is, a, is an amazing path. So I, I, you know, I'd like to think that it's a similar path for me where, where I was doing things that were very thoughtful in terms of methodology to right now doing something that is just uh, totally free spirit with no criteria, no, uh, uh, no, no uh, program, no client. Uh, but at the same time, some of that enters into some of our, our, our clientele work. So the uh, looking at Frank Lloyd Wright as an example, as a uh, classical architect from the 1890s under Louis Sullivan, wonderful work. I love that period of architecture. And then he grows into uh, some of the prairie style, which is amazing. He defined uh, North American architecture in, in many, many ways. And then he's in his seventies and he designs these wonderful buildings like the Guggenheim, which is, you know, where does that come from for a 90 year old man? So the, the idea of, of constantly growing, uh, as opposed to, uh, I'm not, I'm not criticizing someone like, uh, uh Richard Meyer because he does a wonderful craft, but the idea of, you know, you're going to get another white building from this guy, um, that leads me to think about a critique I had uh, by Charles Guathamy. I were doing a project for IBM and uh, uh, the client let me introduce myself to him. And this was in probably 80, 1985. I had the firm for uh, maybe five, ten, five, ten uh, actually uh, seven years at that point. I showed some of the variety of work that, was, uh, that I was doing. And uh, one of the things that Charles Guathamy said that was a, a great compliment to me, he said, I just don't see the, the continuity of your design philosophy. And then I thought to myself, well, I mean, I see super continuity of your design philosophy, but I don't see you stepping out of that, that realm in any way. It wasn't until Disney gave him an opportunity to do a, add color to one of his buildings. Uh, so it was just, to me, it was a compliment to see that I had that variety. Um, earlier in my career, I had several kind of, um, serious discussions with a, a famous uh, graphic designer that has since passed, uh, Massimo Vignelli, I have a tremendous amount of respect for his work, his typography. Uh, he had a, a, a very prescribed vernacular that he used for graphics. He used a, a couple of different fonts that he used all the time. He had a, a simple uh, geometric forms that he used. I mean, he did that well. He honed that craft very well. But I, I've always been kind of on the search for uh, doing a variety of different things, experiencing a variety of different things. So I, in some ways, I feel like I've lived uh, several career paths over the time with my own firm kind of reinventing. Once I got bored with, with uh, uh, doing something, we were doing, uh, in the 80s, we were doing work for real estate developers that got to be prescribed and, and uh, um, somewhat predictable. Certainly the challenges were predictable. It was just an aesthetic move at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I went back. To, uh, architecture school to deepen that, not to necessarily become an architect, but to, to deepen my knowledge of that so I could get influenced by, uh, by that. When I went to teach part-time at uh, several programs, my intent was not to become a teacher, but to get into a program where I would be inspired by these students. And um, not, not all that uh, satisfying uh, for me because I, I felt like they wanted things handed to them on a silver platter. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like hard work and effort is important. I think craft is important. Being able to do something beautiful. You don't have fingerprints on something. You don't have smudges on something that you're going to hand to a client. Uh, just the way you present that in a highly professional manner 
there may be other jobs that you, you don't have to be that way necessarily on. But the, the, the odd thing about uh, in the U.S. is, you, and probably, I'm, I'm sure I shouldn't just be saying U.S., North America, it's, it's all the same in Canada, the same way, where you're doing something, and certainly you've experienced that. They ask you, you know, have you had experience in, in retail design? Have you had experience in, in this or that? And they say, well, limited. Well, we're going to give it to someone that has had more experience. On the other hand, the, the wonderful thing about working in China is they will let you do just about anything and everything for the project if you choose to do that uh, on, your, on your nickel, of course. Uh, but the idea that you can cross the boundaries is, is uh, because the economy is probably still not to the same level as we have in North America and Western Europe. Um, they're able to let us, let us do a great variety of projects and experiment with it. So that's, that opening up of that door to me has been a tremendous uh, exciting period in my career right now where we can do, you know, I, I dreamed when I first started the firm, uh, emulating a firm like Pentagram out of, uh, out of London and New York, where they have uh, graphics, they have product design, they have architecture. I thought, boy, that's, that's amazing. I want to build that. Uh, I, I tried building it in a more corporate fashion where we had about 15 people and it just, it was, it started getting too big for me. It became unmanageable. It became, uh, hard to deal with. Uh, and I had to constantly be doing marketing, not design that I love to do. So on the, on the kind of coattails of that comment, when I go to China uh, and I talk to the uh, architects over there and I try to find some philosophical underpinnings of what they're, what they're doing. And it's hard to pin that down in many people. What, what I, what I find is they're about uh, doing lots and lots of work, uh, building a huge firm, and making it bigger and bigger. Uh, and when I ask, uh, I sit down with several designers and you know, I say, what's, I ask them, what's their vision? And their vision is to become their 50 person firm. Their vision is to be 150 next year. And I said, I, I find that my, my feeling is the exact opposite. I have, you know, basically a 10 person firm. I have some allies internationally that we work with. We, we have no vision of being any bigger than we are because I want to stay involved in the design aspect of what we're doing. And it's kind of shocking to them. And I find, um, that kind of lack of uh, passion about that or lack of passion about history. History, I think, is extremely, extremely important for designers to, to comprehend. And when you don't have that, you start doing really dumb buildings. You start doing dumb urban design. And it's, uh, it, you know, if you can continue, just like, you know, when you look at a career in high tech, these guys are going to be out of a job if they don't keep educating themselves. And I think the same way... Uh, for architecture or design, you've got to constantly become stimulated through conversation, through talks, through something that you pick up. Um, I just finished a book about Michael Graves. Uh, I loved him when he was doing the work early on. I, I love his approach to design. I'm not sure how uh, enamored I am with where he wound up with it, but he had all these things that entered into him creating his passion. He was super passionate about it. Even when he became handicapped, he became passionate about creating wonderful healthcare environments and healthcare products. So how do you become inspired by what you do as opposed to becoming uh, conventional and a worn out um, commodity? And that's the problem with any kind of field, whether it's acting or anything. If you get to becoming a commodity, then price is all that's important. And uh, I hate to get involved in, 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 in intense price competition. If the client doesn't see a value in what we're doing and anyone we're competing with is basically in their eyes doing the same thing, then it's, it's to no avail. I mean, you, you generally don't win out. Somebody's got to be a supporter. So in the 40 years that we've had the firm, we have some clients that we've done work for for 30 years. The Canadian Cadillac Fairview, we've done work for them for 30 years. We've done work in the U.S. and we do work in, uh, in Canada with them. And it's not the same people, but it's the same firm. So there's, you know, you, you build a trust and that's one thing about uh, the design business. I mean, you can do it through BS, but if you don't deliver, you're never going to get that second job. You got to build a vision, achieve the vision, build the, and, and build that uh, project in order to, you can't just write a white paper and put it on a shelf. At least I can't. That was, uh, again, going back to that Michael Graves book, uh, he was told uh, by, um, uh, I think by Philip Johnson, 
to don't become a paper architect, build, you've got to build. And uh, that's when he built that Portland building mm-hmm. and things start to happen. People start to see things. They, if you know, they either get turned off by it or they get turned down by it and you can keep honing your craft. I mean, uh, you can see that with the, with anyone who's successful or you can be doing the humdrum things of doing work for, uh, for federal governments that is just, you know, pretty rep- replicated and it's just bottom line money and it's not a passion. Uh, I mean, not everybody has to have a passion. You can't have a world filled with Frank Gehry buildings. It would be a, just as scary as a Caboosian world. You know, it'd be like you're entering into some kind of a melted melted world uh, domination. It's very interesting what you said about the commoditization of the profession. And it's actually what we made our mission about at Revelators to really uh, change that perception that you can only compete on price Uh, because uh, you're you're absolutely right. The uh, the you know if you're only doing what everybody else is doing, you're never differentiating yourself, and you're always um, uh, have to undercut other people. Whereas when you demonstrate the value of what you do and uh, can execute on it, then the sky's the limit. And I think we go back to the idea of you know you working with Cadillac Fairview for 30 years. That's very interesting because it means. There's probably a tremendous amount of value in the work you do for them because they keep coming back for it. Um, and I think I think architects, generally speaking, I think architects are just um, unaware or a, a little bit ignorant of that uh, kind of line of thinking uh, because it's a very insular culture that doesn't um, open itself up to a lot of other things, I find. Um, it likes to pretend to, but it doesn't, in fact... And I think, uh, again, to go back to your sources of inspiration, it's very important to be open to other things and read and travel and talk to people that are not in your field because there's so many lessons to be learned. Yes. You touched on creativity briefly, and I, I want to delve into that a little more. Uh, what is the role of creativity in your life and how does that affect your work? I'm constantly uh, on the lookout for uh, seminars for, I mean, I'm not close to any, any thinking, modern design, modern architecture, modern painting. I just become very open to that. I can appreciate most, uh, most what the world has, has brought forth. Um, the uh, importance of context uh, and creativity. Uh, I think that's something that the, uh, has kind of gone by the wayside. And uh, when I travel and do a project in Dubai, for example, I'd like to think that some of the work that we do <clears throat> kind of pays homage to the, um, to the context. In China, I try to look at uh, some levels of, of uh, what's there, materiality, uh, color, palettes. Um, I don't by any means understand the uh, history of Chinese culture as well as I do European culture, but I, I try to comprehend what's near there. So when I go to meet with a client, whether it's, you know, whether it's in Vancouver and try to understand what when Vancouver is about, or it's in a, in a remote town in, in China, I try to understand what's, what's there to appreciate there. I mean, yes, all these multitude of buildings have been built that are modern and characterless and, and devoid of any context. And why not bring some of that context into what you're doing, even in a very small way with, with uh, what I was saying before materials. And it's, it's philosophically um, from a creativity standpoint, we do that with all of our projects, whether we're just doing signage or, or we're doing exhibit design, we try to look at what's, what has, for example, what has Caesar Kelly done in the building next door to a museum that we're doing for, for Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, what kind of material use, what kind of lighting uh, motif is there? So we try to bring that in. So context could be historical context. Context could be the context of, of the uh, surrounding architecture or interiors. That is missing in a lot of, uh, lot of design. They just, uh, especially in a lot of projects in Asia, they just kind of uh, create things that don't have any, uh, any roots. On the other hand, um, you know, as, as, uh, odd as the building is a little bit. There's a Jin Mao Tower that SOM did in, uh, in Pudong in China, and it has feeling of a Chinese temple, but it's not that kitschy or, or direct. But there is something of that uh, that is there, as opposed to the, the new Gensler building in Pudong, which is this swooping um, tower that basically just dialogues with the other towers around there. It's a beautiful building, but it has nothing contextual. So some of that 
I, I wouldn't want, again, I wouldn't want to see a world of that on there because um, European or, or North American designers aren't necessarily the best ones to handle some of that. But that was a, a, a good gesture, I thought, that SOM did on that particular project. So context is what I was kind of getting at there. So where am I looking uh, uh, creativity. I, I try to search it out anytime I go um, to a place. I try to save one or two days these days that I can spend time in that area and try to take it in as opposed to just doing everything through a, uh, a digital go-to meeting or something like that. When there's no context, like many projects that get built in greenfields, then you're kind of trying to build the, like we are in a couple of these Greenland projects right now, we're trying to build philosophically of how things tie to each other uh, in this new world that they're trying to build in this, uh, in this location. What happens in, in the pace of design, again, probably in China more than anywhere else, is the pace is so fast that they don't have time to think about whether they've made the right decision. Uh, in America, the, the pace is, let's say, 18 months for a, a project to be realized, you know, six months for design, eight, 12 months for design. It's, you know, three months for design in China where you're just constantly running. So you, you make a mistake and you just live with it. Not that we're living with it uh, on the projects that we're doing, but that's what happens on many of them. And the other thing with, with huge projects in China is that they put a team together of uh, a 7,000 person firm getting involved in the production drawings on some of these. And these guys aren't even talking to each other. They just kind of just keep cranking on, on uh, what's being done there. So where we've been put in some of our projects, and it's been kind of exciting, is we've been kind of been put in the vision control uh, mode of, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it art director, but that's kind of what it is. It's a symphony conductor where you start looking at what's happening with these various pieces and how do they relate to one another from a palette standpoint, from a material standpoint, uh, and why... Um, why you make certain moves. Uh, we saw that happen with a number of projects that we were in that we were able to try to direct the, um, uh, the vision of the entire project, which was in this one case, one project that we did in, the, in the Guangzhou was uh, 22 30-story towers around uh, two courtyards and how you manage the way these things look so they don't look absolutely identical. There are some differences. There are some context uh, relationships. There are some connections to the, uh, the vision and the brand. So we're trying to envision um, from a creativity standpoint to manage that chaos that happens over there. In the U.S., we have, um, and in North, you know, probably in Canada, I'm sure you have project managers. And these project managers are, are supposed to be managing some of that project uh, as opposed to just the architect managing that. And in some cases, it, uh, it becomes a hindrance there's just too much control over some of that because a lot of the control winds up being what is this thing going to wind up costing? So you spend more time on, on bringing it down to uh, a commodity cost level than uh, necessarily what the vision of this thing, you know, bringing someone like a Frank Gehry, you'd have that, but bringing someone who's more of a, in the production mode as an architect or a project manager, all you're doing is, is managing the, uh, uh, the cost of this project. And that's not enough. You need to have uh, some kind of uh, vision behind it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of related to creativity, but I want to talk a little more about business and um, uh, risks, taking risks and failure. Uh, what are what would be the biggest risk you've ever taken? Um, well, the biggest risk that we've taken is probably when we first started entering into China. We had um, we started doing work before we got paid, and we uh, were fortunate that we were working with uh, the top developer and a, and a very honest uh, person that we were working with. So we did not uh, have any, any issues of getting paid, but many people wind up having <clears throat> those kind of issues working in foreign countries. Um, so that was a, a huge risk that we, you know, we went ahead and got paid three to six months after we did the work, which m means that you have to have the capital to operate the firm during that time period, because you're not going to collect anything for three to six months, we've mitigated a little bit of that and we get 50% uh, uh, upfront before we begin anything. And it's been pretty successful um, so far. And that last payment takes a while longer, but in between we try to get ahead of that. In uh, Dubai, we had a, a little bit of a catastrophe in 2008. We, we did the same thing because the client was paying us all along. And then all of a sudden 2008 comes along and we've got uh, 
$400,000 in, in collection and we keep doing things and the whole thing just freezes up. So we didn't get paid $400,000 for three years. We uh, just kind of, they told us to patiently wait. Something's going to be able to be rectified. Three years later, we collected $300,000, uh, which was a bonus for that year, but we had a horrible year the, the previous time. So the risk there, and we've had a couple minor blips like that in the Middle East, is financially you've got to become uh, a little bit more uh, insistent on getting some capital in a timely way and, and don't deliver the, the goods before you're going to get uh, paid for some of them. I don't think we've been able to do that totally, but um, we have been doing a pretty good job at it. Originally, we didn't get bashed like that, so we've had a couple of instances like that. So the risks are pretty high over there. If you, I mentioned to many people, if you're, if you're going to do international work, um, don't do it when you're financially in trouble. Do it when you've got some capital to, uh, to lean back on. You've got six months of capital that's going to keep your operation going. Don't go when you've got nothing of capital and you get in there, you're going to, you're going to find that you're, you're going to be out of business very quickly because things just don't happen in the same fashion from a payment standpoint over there. So uh, mitigating that risk is something that we've tried to do recently and been done pretty good at that. Can you speak to uh, what your biggest failure would be and what the lessons, uh, what were the lessons you've learned out of that? Well, I guess that uh, that failure was probably the one I mentioned to you, but I, I, I'll mention another thing about risk um, back on what you were just saying. And I think uh, the first job that we got in China was a risk because We didn't do uh, much architecture in our office uh, at that time. We didn't do much interiors at the office at that time. Uh, we didn't do much sculpture in the office at that time. We, we um, walked into a job that we had really, from a standpoint of being pigeonholed in North America to, uh, you know, doing developer work, doing healthcare work, doing, you know, certain kind of things. We were, we were not pigeonholed in there. We were asked to do these things. We volunteered to do it uh, within the the scope of, uh, of the services that we did and the, and the lump sum fee that we did, we took that on. So that was a risk. You know, you don't know, uh, you've never done that kind of thing before. You don't know what it's going to take to do it. We've been able to successfully, uh, through not through uh, intense management of how much time we spent in it, but just how we shook out in the end, we've been able to do pretty well in terms of where we are in the end with this, these kind of projects. So that risk was, pretty huge, you know, uh, not having done something like that before and actually saying, yes, we can do it and delivering on it. So, uh, and in that process, just learning and learning a lot about what, what it takes to do that kind of project. So it's not that we, we BS our way into doing the project. We didn't, but we, you know, we, we took on things that we've never done before. And that's, what's really probably the biggest risks that we've taken Throughout my career, we've always kind of stair-stepped, uh, used that previous step that we've learned something on to get to that next step. I mean, the, the multitude of projects that we've done, I feel pretty proud that we were able to um, pull them off quite well, design them quite well, fabricated quite well. They last a long time. They don't just, they're not ephemeral. They don't go away. Uh, uh, maybe some retail ones are more dramatic than others, but We, we feel pretty proud of that, that we're able to, um, to achieve things that we've never done before and do them well. We took on some landscape architectural projects recently where we did a memorial, um, and uh, it included fountains and planting and, and elements like that. We put a, In this case, we put a, a, a landscape architect and a team member, or a lighting designer and a team member. So we have these access to friends that we work with over a period of time to Uh, when we don't know how to do something, we try to get the advice. And in some cases, we, uh, we listen to some of that. But in some cases, we approach it a little bit differently than someone ha that has done a great deal amount. And we bring, I feel, a kind of fresh kind of uh, creativity to it in our own way after getting the traction of, of, uh, of where we're headed with this kind of project. Uh, so as, as far as other failures, I, I don't know. Um, I mean... Uh, I can't think of, I mean, the financial failures, uh, yes. Uh, I don't think we've, we may have been over 40 year period. We may have been, uh, unfortunately, you know, terminated from a job and that was not because we didn't perform. It's because I guess in this one project that we we're doing, that was a, that was kind of a failure. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about that. It was a very, it was an amazing project. It was for Eli Lilly, a, a, 
a drug company in Indianapolis. And we were doing probably a 50,000 square foot museum for them. Uh, we master planned it. We designed it conceptually. And uh, uh, we're doing everything. The client is providing basically uh, critique, but no content, no no uh, uh, artifacts, no nothing over a period of three months. So we tell them uh, uh, we, we're at a point where the client loves what we're doing. Uh, we uh, we are asked uh, because the CEO wants this thing delivered in uh, in 12 months. Um, we're asked to. Uh, design it in such a way that it could be built within that 12 month period, which would mean we'd need to have the content. We'd need to work on all this. And we, from an honesty standpoint, we said to the client, it's not going to be possible. It's going to take every bit of uh, 18 months to make this happen. And again, we've got a small firm. We're doing this. We're doing a, a great job. We, we uh, spend months on this. The client is extremely happy. We've got a call with them on, um, on Friday and another follow-up call is going to be on Monday. Uh, we get on the follow-up conference call, just like we're talking on right now. We can't get into the, the call. And um, we wondered why. And we call them later and we say, well, we couldn't get into the call. And this is a guy that absolutely loved us. Uh, we couldn't get into the call. He says, well, there's a reason why you couldn't get in the call. And I said, well, what's the, why couldn't we get into the call? He says, because you've been terminated. Uh, I just, I just shocked. Uh, I said, why, why it happened? He says, because you can't deliver on the, on the 12 month schedule that I have, I'm not going to take a risk with you because I'm about to retire. The CEO needs this. I'm not going to be embarrassed by you not delivering. So I went ahead and brought in a 3000 person firm HOK to, uh, to get involved in this. And as it turned out, the, the project took over two years to achieve, if not more. I mean, they, they took a lot of what we designed conceptually. They made it happen. But the, the thought that I had at that, you know, in retrospect, um, uh, we can deliver what we control in our own firm, and we should be honest about that. We cannot control what the client delivers, and we shouldn't take that into account. We took it into account, and it was accurate, but it was uh, it's probably inappropriate to have said that, say, can you deliver? Yeah, we can deliver on our on our end. Yes, we can do all this, this, and that, and we hope that if, if we get everything in place, we can deliver. So we could have kept that commission. Uh, as a result, we were just a design um uh, uh, portion of that, the conceptual design portion, which is unfortunate because it would have been a great project for us to to have uh, fully realized in our portfolio. But uh, I'm not saying that we should have been dishonest. We wouldn't have been dishonest, but would have, if you can maintain that you can have control over what you yourself can do, yes, you do, but you don't have any control over what the client's going to deliver or not deliver. No, that's a great story. Um I want to go back a few minutes and you about your Chinese experience. And you said um, you talked about taking on things that you had uh, very little experience um, in it, and and that made me think about one of uh, the things that my mentor says all the time, which is um, where there's no fear, there's no growth. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the the essence of that teaching. Um, is that what you were going for, taking on all those projects that? Uh, you weren't you weren't sure that you had the ability to compete. No, no, we. I fully felt like we had the ability to compete, whether we did it ourselves or we called in other people to kind of help our team. No, I, I wouldn't go into it if I knew that we're bound to fail. I knew that we were going to be able to do it, even if we had to learn how to do it during the process. And it's learning on the go. I mean, it's understanding uh, what it's going to take to uh, to design a thirty-story tower. <laughs> I mean, we've never done a 30-story tower. How do you do that? Uh, we're, you know, we were given the plans, so we're not reinventing everything. We're just doing the facade design. But um, we we were able to come up with uh, several prototypes for this client that they were able to achieve. Uh, we're able to do an entire kind of uh, strategy for the vision of a new town, uh, which we again we've never created a, a even if it's a small town, but it's a you know pretty sizable little town in China to be able to envision what it takes to put that together with public spaces, with public art. Uh, we take that on and we, uh, in some cases, learn on the fly. We learn from what we had experienced in the past. I, I, I go back to uh, a lecture that I had a number of years ago from this, that, or that person. I go back to looking at what Robert Stern had done in this, in this situation and, and something else, or, you know, I just, I try to, um, 
have a database in my own head, but we also have a database on the computer that we have as a resource. We're fortunate to have uh, Google, uh, Pinterest, and things like that. Not that we're copying from it, but we're getting inspired by it and the library that we have that we can get inspired from. Um, just kind of, uh, I mean, it's a, it is a risk uh, of doing that kind of thing. You've never done something like that before. And that's why Americans, North Americans, uh, uh, United States uh, firms don't like to bring somebody that's going to say, well, we can learn how to do this. <laughs> they want, they want to have proven, proven history that you can do it. Um, and that's a little different. I mean, it, it rarely happens on huge projects. Certainly the only place that I can think of is, uh, is China that it happens in. Um, I want to wrap up the interview. I just had a couple of um, shorter questions for you. And uh, the second to last one is about the, your legacy. And so you have to do a little bit of a mental exercise. If you picture yourself on your deathbed, hopefully many years from now, um, what would be the legacy you would want to leave behind? Well, I mean, there's a twofold legacy. Uh, one is a familial legacy. Of, of having pride with your own family, having respect for what you've done and the love of family. That's a, that's a tremendously important legacy. When my children were little, I, I didn't travel like I do right now when they're adults. Uh, that was very important to me. I didn't want to be thinking on my deathbed that I should have spent more time with my kids and I did it. So that, that to me was a, is a probably the most important legacy. The legacy of the designer is that, It's amazing. I, you know, one of the talks that I gave when I got the fellowship from the Society of uh, Experiential Design last year, I called my talk. I could have been throwing rocks at goats. And I show a picture of my cousin in my village in Poland throwing rocks at goats, keeping goats away from eating my kids' clothes. And I could have been there. I could have been a drunk in that village like my cousin is. Uh, probably not because I don't like alcohol. But, I mean, I could have wound up there not leaving uh, Poland. Uh, as a result, uh, I've been able to do all these amazing things internationally as a, as a small firm. I mean, you think, many people think you've got to be an SOM or a uh, HOK or somebody to be able to do all this stuff, but the world is really at your grasp right now. You can, you can do so many things. You don't have to even travel there for that matter, uh, that you can affect design, uh, internationally. And that's what I, I feel probably that's probably the, the legacy that I'm particularly proud of that I could achieve all that and more over that period of time. When I think of, uh, you know, my father being able to giving up everything to come to the United States and, and, uh, the vision of, you know, the fear of, of, uh, of failure in that case was, was pretty serious because he was thinking of going back to Poland in 1962 before we came, because it was very difficult to assimilate into, uh, a different profession, a, a different language, But he stuck it out uh, with the support of his sister that was here. And um, I have always, uh, uh, so, so what am I, what's the legacy? I guess the legacy would be, you know, we've touched so, uh, he touched so many things around the world and, and positively affected um, human perceptions of their own environment and made it a better place to live than it otherwise would have been. That's what I think. And I, I kind of see that as, as something that I, is an ongoing thing that I think about when we get involved in projects in China that are fairly sizable. If we can bring some joy, uh, some moments of joy of things that they wind up experiencing in, in the context of, of what we've created there, whether it's a space, a, a sign, a, a graphic, and it brings a smile to your face, it brings some joy, it brings some inspiration to someone. Uh, so that's, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I have been thinking about. So the last question has become a little bit of a tradition, and uh, and it's to end on a lighter note. Um, stones or beetles? Um, beetles uh, for the melodic, stones for the energy. I mean, I could. I'm driving in my car going 150 miles an hour. Uh, the Rolling Stones uh, going 55. I'm, I'm on the Beatles, so it's a, kind of a combination of the two. <laughs> There's no wrong answer to that question. Um, I, I really like to see what people think. I'm personally a Stones fan, but I'm biased, so I, I don't try to influence other people. Uh, Jan, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, on the show, and I really enjoyed this interview. Um, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor. Appreciate it.
again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Revelator underscore TO, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.